Welcome to Local Color, a show about the local color that makes Baltimore great. I'm your host, Jason V. Today's guest is Fagan Harris, CEO of Baltimore Corps. Fagan moved around a lot growing up and made the decision to stay in Baltimore after a life of wanderlust. Though he graduated from a prestigious university, the job hunt he endured after graduation inspired Fagan to start the nonprofit he heads up today. Listen as we talk about Job Corps, the hard lessons life teach you, and some of the programs Baltimore Corps are organizing to jumpstart Charm City's renaissance. Let's get started. Fagan Harris, the CEO of Baltimore Corps? That's right. All right. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm good, brother. I'm with you. Thanks for coming over. Yeah, absolutely. You have a very nice uh, palatial estate <laughs> down uh, <laughs> here on the second floor on the 800 block of St. Paul. <laughs> it's nice to me. Thanks, I'll, man. I'll say that much. No, I love it. I've been here um, three going on four years. Really? Yeah. Have you seen um, a lot of changes in the neighborhood in those three to four years? Yes. Um, it's complex and I think in a lot of ways not to go too deep too fast it's a bit of a microcosm here in Baltimore no tiny violins but my car got stolen yesterday what here in the neighborhood um second time in three years I've had a big car issue (laughs) yeah so it's uh the the kind of petty crime challenges have gone up on the other hand the development in the neighborhood I think has been incredibly healthy and robust the community's here in the neighborhood have been really supported. You've got longtime residents, you've got new residents. Um, it's a great mixed income neighborhood. There's a young brother running a coffee shop here on the corner that I go to every morning. He's 17, owns his own coffee shop. He's making it happen. Is that the Melody coffee Melody, shop? Oh, yeah. okay. I've seen it a few times. I haven't been in. It's good. Strongly recommend. Okay. Love Doobie's a block over, but Doobie's is always packed. And <laughs> Melody has got great product and okay. he could absolutely absorb the business so awesome check it out all right all right so let's talk about more about uh your beginnings are you from here i claim baltimore i came here when i was six years old Mm -hmm. i started in the first grade here um my parents are from the south so my dad is a white guy from alabama my mom was a black woman from georgia they got pregnant with me in the 1980s and you know, a lot of fallout and drama resulted from that. And so they ended up leaving the South. So I was born in LA and then um, we bounced around and moved maybe 10 times in five or six years before settling here in the Baltimore area. What caused all of those moves in such a small frame of time? Work. My parents were looking for work and looking for opportunity. And what kind of opportunities were they? What kind of work did they do? So my parents both came up in a system and program called Job Corps, which is a federally run program that you know, helps folks get job training and helps them get work um, out in the world. It, it's a gr- it's one of the new society programs from Lyndon Johnson. So in the 1960s, the federal government decided that as we became a less industrial and manufacturing economy and moved more to trades and vocation and knowledge economy and information economy, um, that the people and the government needed to invest in skill development and training and workforce. And so they both participate in that and then worked in that field um, and so at an early age, um, you know, I watched the passion my parents had for creating opportunity for themselves, for their family, but also for their community and people that they cared about and that were invested in. And so we kind of hopscotch from Job Corps Center 
the Job Corps Center all around the country before settling here. How exactly did that work? I've heard of Job Corps before, but did, did were there only a finite amount of jobs available? And then you just, it, like, how did that work? So Job Corps is a residential program. Um, by my last count, and this may not be right today, I'm not sure, um, about a quarter million people go through Job Corps every year. And so predominantly young people will go move and live at a Job Corps center, and they'll get intensive training and stuff that they're good at. That might be welding, uh, that might be carpentry, that might be construction, that might be radio, media, the arts, you name it. Um, and then Job Corps will work with, say, the local workforce board and facilitate job placement for those individuals. When you were growing up and you had such a transient lifestyle, maybe you didn't know it back then, but as you got older, do you feel like it gave you this sense of urgency, like you always had to be on the move, and if you just stayed in one place for too long, you're just... Absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think coming up, when you're moving a lot, that gets really normalized. And then I remember, actually, um, when we kind of committed to Maryland and being here, and then my dad actually kind of kept moving, and, you know, he would work other places. It's just that my mom kind of drew the line in the sand and said, all right, no more moving for the family. You can go where you got to go, and we'll make it work, but we got to stay put. It did create a sense of wanderlust and wanting to move around in the world. It wasn't later. It wasn't really till my 20s that I decided... Actually, I really like being from someplace, and mm -hmm. I like knowing who my community is and how I'm spending time uh, with folks, and th that meant a lot more to me as I got older. And I didn't know it, but when I moved home back in 2012, I was 25 or 26. Home meaning Baltimore? Here in Baltimore, yeah. Okay. I had had this kind of feeling in my gut that being home was like the right move and putting down roots and really committing to the place. Turned out that was like the last five years with my mom which was awesome and I'm so thankful and I think if I had kept moving I would have missed that and then so many other rich wonderful things came as a result of that of really committing and going deep in one place I think millennials get a bad rap because we're kind of known as the generation that pops around moves around mm -hmm. can't stay put can't stay in a job can't <laughs> stay in a place yeah and I think that's somewhat true but not always do you have any siblings three too many Three, two, nine. <laughs> so where where do you sit in the uh, in in the age bracket? Um, so I'm the third of four for my mother. I was my mother and my father's first. Oh, okay, I see. Now is it like evenly split? Two boys, two girls, or are you three doing? boys and one girl? Oh. The girl's the oldest, as she likes to remind us all the time. My girlfriend is the oldest of four, so um, yeah. So once you guys put down roots in Maryland, you said you were six. Yep. Did you start going to school in Maryland, or were you schooled in any other states beforehand? I did, like, kind of preschool. We were in Maine for a while, and then I did kindergarten in Bowie. We lived in Bowie for a while. What was school like for you? Was it a nuisance? Did you like it? Kind of lending itself to your earlier uh, feelings about moving around in sense of urgency? Was it just something that you just like, ugh, I need to do more? I love school. Um, I love being busy. I love being stimulated. Um, I love to read. Um, I was a kind of voracious reader as a kid. Um, what are some of your favorite books? Oh, man, The Lord of the Rings. Mm. Did that in grade school. Fell in love with that. Grade school, wow. I love biography. I loved um, fantasy. I loved National Geographic. <laughs> massive fan of National Geographic. I was a massive fan of the public library. I spent most hmm. days after school at the library. Which one did you go to? Um, I went to the one on Ritchie Highway. Oh, okay. Uh, I see. In North Ritchie, yeah. School was interesting, though, man, because I went to public school and kind of mixed income, multiracial. And 
school was really variable. Some years I had great teachers and great experiences, and then other years I had a really hard time, kind of depending on the orientation of the teachers. I dealt with some racism. Um, some of the few times I remember my mother getting really angry was when one of the teachers at the elementary school used the N-word uh, in reference to me and my brother, and my mom came up and tore them a new one. I can imagine. She was not happy. And then got jerked around a little bit, particularly in the transition from grade school to middle school, where, you know, in public school, they still do a lot of tracking. And Can you explain what tracking is for people that might not know? Sure. So tracking is where you... Um, kind of put kids on academic paths that you feel like are calibrated to their development. So you might say, okay, I think this young person is maybe not a strong reader or not good at math. And so we need to put them in kind of intensive remediation or special education, or this young person is particularly quick at reading and math. We need to put them in gifted and talented or accelerate um, kind of their progress. And so I participated in all of those depending on the year. Really? So I remember just having a lot of whiplash, hmm. depending on kind of how that shook out every year. And I felt then and feel now that it was a lot of it was racially motivated. And um, and so that actually, when I look back on it, though, I'm grateful for that, because what it taught me is it helped control for having a sense that, like, everything would be within <coughs> your span of control. And that life actually can be really arbitrary and that systems really matter. And to the extent you're seen or viewed by other people and these systems, that actually like means a lot. And that this kind of American notion that everyone just controls their own destiny. And if you work hard, the system will reward you accordingly mm -hmm. is false. Hmm. Um, and I, I came to realize kind of dependent on the teacher and the whims of that moment, um, I could be in very different places and still be the same person working the same amount of effort. Hmm. Do you think that was a tough lesson for you to learn at an early age? Do you think mm -hmm. that that kids might learn that lesson a lot earlier than adults might think? I think kids learn so much more than adults realize or think because kids are very perceptive about the reality that's unfolding around them and how they're being treated. And um, it was a really challenging lesson. And one that happens all the time. I mean, African-Americans are overrepresented in special education in this country. Um, they're underrepresented in accelerated tracks, gifted and talented tracks, things like that. And that has, like, material consequences for college acceptance, college retention, college success, also participation in vocational trades that are particularly well um, kind of suited for folks. So it, it's a massive deal. And... Um, I don't think one that people really fully understand. I think in general, we just struggle to understand the dynamics of race in this country and how those things play out. And it's very real. And a lot of times it's people's unconscious bias and people who have power. Um, that's how the scales get manipulated. And that's how life trajectories change. When you're high school or college age, is that when you started to get an eye and a mind for social justice and entrepreneurship because Baltimore Corps, it is, I'm assuming it's a nonprofit. It's a nonprofit. So at the end of the day, like, it's still a business, but it's not one that's designed to make money. When did you start having those thoughts in your head about those, those mm -hmm. types of things? So I got a paper route when I was 10 years old, and that was life-changing. So I ended up delivering for the Capital Gazette for almost seven years. And I delivered in a predominantly working class, low-income neighborhood. 
Were you the typical kid with like the sling? Oh yeah, throwing? the oh. whole nine yards. Yeah. Okay. And every Wednesday and Saturday, I was up at four thirty and would deliver those papers. And the way the route works is you basically get the papers from the paper company, and then you bag them up, and then you go deliver them to your customers. And then at the end of every month, you got to go collect the revenue from the customers to cover the cost of the paper, and then you get to take home whatever margins left over. Oh, wow. And um, that taught me a lot about business at an early age. It also taught me a lot about inequity, because I remember distinctly, I was doing collections one night, it was probably six o'clock, and I knock on this door, and I ask kind of the woman who answered, I said, you know, I'm here from the Gazette, I'm here to collect the $3 for the paper for, say, the month of March, and she said, come on in. So she invited me in, and her kids were sitting at the dinner table, and she said, um, I want you to come here and see what's in front of you. And I thought she was going to scold me for interrupting dinner. Mm -hmm. It was like dinner time. Mm -hmm. And so I come close to the dinner table and she says, what do you see? And I said, well, I'm, I, I'm obviously interrupting dinner and I'm very sorry. I'm just here to do the collections and I'll get out of your hair. And she says, no, no, no. Like look closer at the table. Like, what do you see? And they were all eating slices of bologna for dinner. And I said, I see you guys are eating bologna for dinner. And she says, yeah, do you think I have $3 for the damn paper? Another hard lesson. Yeah. And so I I got like 100 stories like that from people. And it was interesting. My mom and my dad were great about it because what would happen is that I would say, okay, I wouldn't collect the money and then I would leave. But then you'd have this kind of dilemma where these things would happen and all of a sudden you're barely breaking even on the route or maybe even losing money some months. And I would tell my parents, I'm like, what do I do? Like, this particular household doesn't want to pay for the paper, but I'm delivering the paper. I'm getting up early. Like, I have to pay for the papers. Mm -hmm. And they would never step in and solve it. They would basically just say, well, what do you think? What's fair? Hmm. What's fair? And how do people deserve to be treated? And I think their message was, look, making money is great, but that's not why you're delivering the paper. Like, that's not why we're helping you get up at 4.30 on a school (laughs) school morning to deliver the newspaper it's there because it's teaching you about the world and that a lot of people got the short end of the stick and for a lot of those folks they're counting on the paper because this is not to sound like an old man but this is pre-internet this is pre-iphone this is the mid-1990s man so like people were relying on that local paper for the classifieds for hunting for jobs um for understanding what was going on in the school system was going on in their community like it was the vital source of information and so even at 10 11 12 13 i distinctly remember making the connection of like wow, it is so messed up that these pe- people could be cut off from their source of connection information and, like, the vicious cycle of poverty and inequity and injustice can really isolate people. That was really, like, my first kind of business venture. And later, here's my kind of other lesson I learned, was <laughs> I realized, well, I have this network of paper clients and I'm really well-liked on my route, well, I could also mow everyone's yards. I could also shovel their driveway. Like, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm not making as much of the paper business, but I could go do other things. And yeah. so I started a landscaping company at 14 and did that and was really into that for a long time. And that actually was pretty lucrative. I can imagine. Every time we'd have a snow day, I was the like maniac that was out the door. You're just rubbing your hands together. You're like, yeah, I saw work. green 5 a.m. I was gone. I was out <laughs> and we would clear like eight, nine hundred dollars a day because we would be out from five in the morning to probably nine or ten at night. Oh, OK. And we would just canvas all the neighborhoods that we were also delivering papers in. So, mm-hmm. OK, OK. When you got older, uh, where did you go to college? I went to Stanford. You went to Stanford. OK. What was that experience like? Stanford was 
super life-changing. Um, so I went to public school here. I went to Glen Burnie High School, which is a big public high school, maybe 10 minutes outside of the city. Um, 2,200 kids, 2,300 kids, uh, probably 60% graduation rate. It's the school where if you were valedictorian, um, you know, you were considered very successful if you went to Anne Arundel Community College or maybe University of Maryland. And both of those are fine institutions. I mean, AACC is one of the best community colleges in the country. Mm -hmm. University of Maryland is obviously a flagship university in this country. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but there wasn't a sense that, like, you, did, you just didn't get stories every day of people deviating from that too much. And I'd say maybe 10 or 15% of the student body would go the two- or four-year route. And everybody else was just figuring it out. So all my friends from high school, they became plumbers, electricians. Sadly, a lot of them, we've lost them to overdoses. A lot of those guys that I used to run with and hang with and chill with, are they're literally gone because uh, of the drug stuff. And um, So it was a very blue-collar kind of community in town, 60-40 white-black, like a lot of kind of racial tension. I'm mixed race, so I kind of got adept at managing through that, dealing with that as a young person. Then you get to Stanford. And it was like going from black and white to technicolor because now you're in the heart of Silicon Valley. You're in the economic engine, not just for the country, but for the planet. Um, it was the first pro-social, pro-academic environment I'd been in. I definitely was the kid in all of my public education. I was a very good student and I worked very hard, but I always sat in the back. I always slouched in my seat. I always wore my kind of windbreaker, my athletic wear. I was always trying to kind of obscure the fact that I was like a big nerd like a super nerd who loved fantasy novels <laughs> uh, so going to Stanford you had like not just people reading fantasy novels you had the damn fantasy club man yeah. I mean they were doing all kinds of stuff out there and so majorly eye-opening um, really the first time in my life that I was just overwhelmingly privileged by virtue of being there because the resources are enormous and when you're a college student there like you know, a lot of the criminal justice doesn't apply to you. I remember having kids in my freshman dorm that were doing cocaine and like nobody was batting an eye. You're around here and like you got dudes getting locked up for a lot less, a yeah. lot less. Yeah, and definitely. so all of that kind of came into full relief out there. Um, but, I, you know, I didn't lose my work ethic. And I always like to say, like, I applied a blue collar work ethic to a very privileged situation and that yielded a lot of dividends for me. You talked about that duality just now blue collar work ethic with a, deci in a decidedly privileged uh, environment was there any culture shock not when you went to Stanford but let's say after your sophomore or junior year when you came back home and your mind had just been expanded to new reaches mm -hmm. when you came back home was there any specific event that made you think like like what why why is this happening why is mm -hmm. this the norm mm -hmm. it's a great question i i remember coming back because i would spend every summer back home and i would try to get internships in city government or with the state department of education or at a law firm doing public interest work and there was a disconnect because you know i'll be really candid i came home and i was like well i'm like soon to be a stanford grad like y'all should be rolling out the red carpet for me and i can do a b and c and like people did not care they were not interested at first I found that very challenging in time I realized that there's good reasons for that there's good reasons for self-defense mechanisms in communities and in places because 
it's really dangerous when people come in and think they have all the answers. It's really dangerous when people come in and they don't want to listen to the people who have to live here and are here. It's really dangerous when people don't lead from what people actually need and want what they're asking for, but are imposing kind of their version of what they think is best. And then if you go a layer deeper and you think that like, look, Stanford's a fantastic place. It's also a predominantly white institution and it's got its own set of values and it's got its own orientation and it's got its own set of goals and objectives. It was a big adjustment kind of navigating the chasm between those two worlds. Where I landed was you have to approach it like the community is the place that you live in and are invested in for the long term, which means Mm -hmm. you got to live there. Mm -hmm. You've got to pay attention to what's going on in the neighborhood. You got to be attentive to that and you have to respect the knowledge and wisdom that's there. And then to the extent that you understand those goals and objectives, then you can leverage your privilege and your skills to help advance them. But if you're not beginning from the place of like, what's going on here and what is the people who live here, what do they care about? And how can we support those goals and objectives? They don't have any time for you coming in with your grand ideas about what you're gonna force onto folks. Mm, okay. And what did you study at Stanford? Um, when I was studying, it was uh, political science and American studies. Oh, okay, I see. So you graduated from Stanford. When did you graduate? 2009. Okay, you come back home. When did you get the idea for Baltimore Core? Was it always going to be a nonprofit? Did you always want mm. to start your own business? Um, when I graduated college, I got this job at this for-profit startup. And long, very long story short, I ended up resigning because they were doing things that I thought were unethical. And um, it kind of challenged my sense of integrity. And so quit my job, didn't have another job. Started really thinking about, okay, where do I go from here? What do I want my life to look like? What do I care about? Realized that public service, um, community work was kind of a big focus for me something that was always part of my true north in life ended up applying to a bunch of jobs in the social sector and it took me six months to find a job I was moving people into their apartments in San Francisco I was moonlighting I was freelancing like I was just trying to keep the lights on I was living in this guy's attic this guy named Chuck he's a retired anesthesiologist there in the Palo Alto area and I was living in Chuck's attic um, for no money a month but didn't have a kitchen Chuck was always mad when I was using the hot plate up in the <laughs> attic. <laughs> um, I was living off Trader Joe uh, salads and burritos. It was rough, man. And um, finally got that job after six or seven months of unemployment. And I'm like, credit card debt to the hilt. And like, I'm on my last leg. And um, I just remember thinking, like, it just shouldn't be this hard to find a job doing a career in social good like it just shouldn't be this challenging and I remember thinking man like I've got all the privilege in the world and it took me seven months and probably like 70 job applications and interviews to get an entry-level role in the sector like it felt like a market inefficiency that was screaming to be solved and so that's when I first started thinking about it Um, fast forward I was doing some work here in the Baltimore area um, with the NAACP. So I led the marriage equality effort for the NAACP in 2012. Um, And in the course of doing that, you know, started seeing nonprofits and social entrepreneurs and government agencies trying to do great work, trying to do their best to make Baltimore all that it can and should be. 
and the rate limiter for them wasn't money. It wasn't a desire to do great work. Um, invariably people would say, well, we just don't have the talent necessarily. Like we don't have the teams, the groups of people, the constellation of capabilities needed to really solve some of these issues. We don't have a great graphic designer who can bring like our website and our marketing to the 21st century. So no one knows what 311 is. And so mm -hmm. people don't use it. And that's the issue. Or we don't have someone who's a trained public health expert in the overdose prevention um, to help stem the tide of like this crazy wave of death that's overwhelming our communities. Like we just don't have it. And kind of connecting back to that original moment, leaving college and then fast forwarding here, when you're an organizer, you're just having conversations, hundreds of conversations, and you start seeing this theme. I realized, I was like, wow, people actually really need this. And so you, then you start thinking, okay, well, what can we build or engineer that can help solve it? Okay. This is, um, I'm leapfrogging a little bit. I was originally next going to ask, in your words, describe what Baltimore Core does, uh, but as you're on that track of talking about um, seeing a need in the community and stuff like that. Oh, thank you. What hardships did you face getting Baltimore Core off the ground? Even earlier, you mentioned coming back from Stanford and kind of having to pump your brakes and realize, like, just because I have the ideas and, and the fancy Ivy League education doesn't mean what I want for the community is actually what the people need. Right. Did you have an issue with the community when trying to get Baltimore Core off the ground? I wouldn't say that I had an issue with the community necessarily, but the community had concerns. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's funny. You get going on a journey like this and you think, okay, and I'm just telling you in full disclosure, shows you how naive I was. You <laughs> sure. think, all right, we need more really great people working in institutions that really matter for people. How hard can that be really? Turns out that's insanely hard. <laughs> Turns out that is like really, 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 really hard yeah. on so many levels. Yeah. And so like the first one you run into, particularly with the nonprofit sector, is that especially back in 2012, the basic awareness around diversity, inclusion, let alone equity and conversations about who has power and voice in organizations was at a very nascent stage. And um, people of color felt incredibly marginalized by the nonprofit industrial complex and feeling like it was a space that wasn't accessible to them and that it was basically a non-starter around organizing around institutions that didn't reflect the community um, to try to go into them to go into them to advance the interests of the community. So that's just like one of many issues that we quickly encountered that this was going to be a lot more complicated and a lot more challenging than we thought. The thing that I always came back to that kept me motivated in the quest was one, while all of that is true, I would meet really talented people, a lot of them people of color, but not all of them, every day who would say, I really want to be in the fight and I really want to be practically helping improve people's lives. And I wish the social sector or the city government would welcome me into that because I have a lot to contribute. And then I would see institutions that would say, look, we're extremely flawed, but we're the only institution in this neighborhood and we're willing to change, but we need to see the way to change. And we have a responsibility to somehow figure out how to do this work. And so when you're an entrepreneur, you deal in the realm of what is possible. 
and what can you actually achieve to, to move things forward. And so we early on got really schooled and took a lot of feedback and a lot of hits and a lot of criticism in the early years around values. You know, I think when we started Baltimore Core, I thought about the problem at first very mechanically. How do we build a really robust recruitment function? How do we use that recruitment function to source super talented people into the organizations doing the work most directly impactful for the people who live in the city of Baltimore? Overdose work, public safety work, education work, child care, health care, work with the elderly. And I learned that while the mechanics are really important, as important are the values and as important is the long-term vision for how you're going to transform the spaces that's carrying out that work. And that, that mattered a lot to the workforce that you were then bringing into those spaces. So it sounded like while these people that you'd wanted to be working with in these communities that you were going into, obviously, I mean, they're not going to sit and say, like, what's the infrastructure look like? They're just going to say, like, I need a job or I need help. Uh, but maybe even more importantly they just wanted to know that you guys cared and exactly it was and that um, we got it and that yeah. we could see that I, and this was another thing that i got wrong early on is that people didn't necessarily expect us to fix all of it but we damn well better acknowledge it hmm. and we better call a spade a spade and we better be transparent that these are the real issues so as you were learning these lessons and it just seems that a lot of your life, maybe even today and in the future, is just going to be a lot of hard lessons. In life. <laughs> yeah, amen, bro. It's just a nonstop yeah. exercise and character correction. Just, just, in, <laughs> just an onslaught of, uh, yeah, this is where you messed up. And yeah. remember last week, yeah, that mm -hmm. was your fault too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When, when you were learning these hard lessons, do you think where Baltimore Core has succeeded, where Baltimore Core has succeeded and where other nonprofits has failed is the ability to take those on the chin and be like, okay, we messed this up. We got to do better. Yeah. And like actually acknowledging like, oh, I was wrong. Yep. 100%. And we had to, to survive. Cause I think we would have lost our community of support and the people invested in us. And I, and I mean the like talented people doing the work. I'm not talking about funding. I'm talking to people who we really rely on to show up and actually go do the really hard stuff. And it, and I gotta be honest, man, it took me a lot of years to get there with that because you're trying to do this thing, you know, it's really important and you're sacrificing, you're not making any money, your health's suffering, you don't have a life, you're all consumed by this thing. So you're doing your level best. And then it seems like every time you go to work, people are blowing up your spot. And it took me a while to realize First of all, it's not about me. Second of all, they're not blowing up the spot because they hate what we're doing. They're blowing up the spot because they really care about what we're doing and they want to see us get it right. And they're trying to give us feedback to guide us on how to get it right. And maybe if we do a better job of listening and responding to that, it'll feel less like we're getting our spot blown up and it'll feel more like we're getting really helpful feedback on how to deliver something that's much better than what we're doing currently. And so, I think for me, maybe three or four years in is when that mental shift happened. And I think as a leader, I became a lot less defensive or even insecure about all of it. And a lot more like, you know what? If people didn't give a shit, they wouldn't even bother. Mm. And they would just let us do our thing in ignorance and we wouldn't improve. And in the long run, 
you wouldn't see the kind of traction that we see today across all the things that we operate at Baltimore Core. Yeah, we've, we've had to grow a lot. And we still, I mean, God, we, we still grow. And in some ways, I think growth is part of it because we operate as the bridge between the world as it is and the world as it ought to be. Mm, right? So we're never going to be the organization. And there are organizations out there who do this, and I respect them, and they're important, whose primary focus is just articulating very clearly all day, every day. This is what the world ought to be, guys. These, this is in a very principled way. This is where what the world needs to be. And we want the world to listen and change. And our job is to speak that truth. Our job is to send people into the gray area and say, like, we know that this particular government agency or this particular nonprofit is very flawed. But today, it's the last best hope for this community on this issue. And we got to do the best that we can do today. And then we got to start trying to push it to evolve and to change in a direction that's far more constructive, far more inclusive, far more diverse. And then that's a 10 year project. I'm asking you young man or young woman to be the leader in year one. And that's not for everybody. And some people say like, well, I don't wanna be kind of the person on the front line of that change and that's totally fair. And then some people say, you know what? That sounds like a worthy challenge, like count me in. It's our job to kind of run into situations that really, that are very acute where we gotta do the work now. Whether that is overdose, whether that is consent decree, whether that is workforce development and working with the long-term unemployed, whether that's working with the elderly who are on Medicaid, who are falling in their showers and dying early deaths because we can't reach them or help them. Like you name the issue, there are people who need help today and they can't wait for the world to catch up to how it ought to be because they need the help today. And so we got to straddle that line um, between just getting done what needs to get done, but then also pushing the systems and the structures to evolve and be kind of far more informed about how they work. Let's talk now about Baltimore Corps as an organization. You've been talking a lot about the community. What community do you serve? Do you serve the whole city? Is it the whole, like, Baltimore City, Baltimore County? Is it a specific neighborhood? It's the city of Baltimore. Just anywhere? From it's the entire city. We are located in West Baltimore. We have a particular focus in West Baltimore. Uh, we made that shift almost four years ago when we located our headquarters in Mondaman. That was an intentional choice. Uh, we're animated by the value of racial equity. Um, being in the neighborhoods and communities that frankly have been on the, the losing end of that for so long. Um, it was just important for us to be there and to participate in that and to try to be part of the, the renaissance that I think is underway on the west side. Um, but we serve the entire community, north, south, east, west. Just all parts of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. The or, city specifically. Though. The Baltimore city. Okay. Huh? On Baltimore Corps' website, there's the mission statement, mission statement, values, about us. Uh, I won't say it's boilerplate, but, you know, any good website would have all of that type of information. Uh, but for some people, it might be a little wordy, and you have hinted at it or you really... tell me I need to shorten up my website, man? Uh, you know, maybe just a little bit. I'm just kidding. I'm going to uh, tell Jermaine, man. You're going to have to work it out with him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, if you could just give like a succinct one-sentence uh, descriptor, what does Baltimore Accord do? We are the front door to opportunities for strengthening the city. 
and anyone who's interested in serving Baltimore City and working on some of its biggest challenges, whatever your capabilities, whatever your talents, whatever your skills, whatever your interest, and whatever the problems, we're a good place to start because we probably have an opportunity for you to participate in those solutions. Okay, that was good. It sounds like, and it would appear that Baltimore Core has its hand in a lot of initiatives. Um, do you feel as if any of them need to be fine-tuned or maybe you need to pay attention to another area so that Baltimore Core can be the asset that you want it to be to the community? No question. I mean, so there's a few reasons why I think Baltimore Core does a lot of things. Number one is like, you know, there's an expression that Baltimore is a city of neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an even older expression that there's 160 neighborhoods but 400 neighborhood associations. <laughs> <laughs> like we are a very provincial and we are a very fractured, splintered town. And we don't play well together and we don't necessarily collaborate really well and that there's a ton of silos. And so our master function at Baltimore core is consolidating as much of the good work that's underway under one umbrella with one set of core values and kind of animating focus so that whether you're an 18 year old with a GED, a 30 year old with an MBA, a recent retiree who wants to use their skills to make the city a stronger place, we have a road for you. We have a place for you. That's why we operate so many different programs is that we actually think we need to make it simpler and more streamlined and more consolidated for people to come together and do big things. You guys do have a lot of initiatives and it's been really great to hear you talk about everything that you guys are doing for the city. But something that I haven't really heard you talk about is this great resource that you have for small business owners. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about Kiva Baltimore? Sure. We're insanely passionate about small business. Um, we in some ways see ourselves as a small business. 99.9% of all jobs in this country is created by small business. And you know, there are kind of narratives in Baltimore City where we focus a lot on, well, what's Under Armour doing or what's Johns Hopkins doing, some of these major anchors, when the reality is that the vast majority of opportunity and economic activity is coming from Main Street. And that is happening in a context where lending to Main Street, lending to small business is down by half over the last 10 years. And that has overwhelmingly and disparately hit black owned business. Kiva Baltimore is a micro lending platform where we give interest free loans of up to $10,000 to small business across Baltimore City. And we provide technical assistance to them and we help get them in the pipeline for more robust access to capital with the big banks. We do the same thing through the Elevation Awards, but instead of loans, we're actually giving grants. But the focus, again, is about finding um, black-owned business in Baltimore City and directly investing them and supporting them. Because if we do that, when you think about communities in West Baltimore and East Baltimore and people say, well, these communities are never coming back because Bethlehem Steel is never coming back. Or Hopkins can't create the kind of jobs in West Baltimore that Domino Sugar Factory did, so these places are hopeless. No, they're not. There are people in those neighborhoods who have fantastic ideas about goods and services that their neighbors and communities need. And with a little bit of support, a little bit of money, a little bit of help, some business plans, some support, social capital, and a network, that's another thing that I take a lot of pride in that we do at Baltimore Corps. It's a really diverse community that has its back. We take care of one another. We don't always get along. We don't always see eye to eye, but we take care of one another. We show up for one another. 
And it's about bringing people into that and making sure they have what they need to be successful. And so we really believe in nurturing small business because that's where the Baltimore renaissance is going to come from. It's going to come from the streets, from the bottom up. Absolutely. So what's next for you and Baltimore Core? I feel like when you talk about it, you're really just talking about, you know, one and the same thing. Like you and Baltimore Core are just uh, interchangeable. Well, that's a that's an interesting point. Um, you know, I'm going to be doing this work for the rest of my life in some way, shape or form. And I'm someone who's very motivated by learning. And so I like taking on new challenges. Some of that's going to happen at Baltimore Core. Frankly, some of that's going to happen outside of Baltimore Core. I like working on the same set of problems, predominantly what kind of access to opportunity that we have, particularly in communities of color. And I like throwing as many solutions as that as we can. Um, for Baltimore Core, for the organization, um, it's a really exciting time. And I'm really proud of where we are. Uh, we recently took over operating Public Allies, which is a very established federal workforce program um, that works for 18 to 24 year olds with the GED or high school diploma, um, gets them placed in community advocacy organizations, gives them employment, but also gives them a lot of training and a lot of skill development. I'm very excited about allies because you can't walk our streets and not be inspired and kind of fired up by our young people. And we don't do a great job of investing in them. And that is to our disservice. And so when I think about the stuff that we do in the Baltimore Core Fellowship, which is recruiting kind of mid-career professionals and putting them in really high-impact roles, or what we do for Place for Purpose, which is placing our alumni in career roles, is placing executives to go lead entire organizations and agencies. When I think about the Elevation Awards or Kiva, when we're working with small business, all of those people started somewhere. And all of them started as a young person doing really good and important work in their communities. And so Public Allies gives us a chance to really invest in the most important asset, which is our city's young people, and to really prime the pump for all the rest of our programs. So we're really excited about that. And in general, just continuing to beat the drum that Baltimore can be a national leader in how to tackle our hardest challenges and to have really honest conversations about some of the hardest topics. And I think this country needs more of that. How can people get in contact with you or learn more about Baltimore Core or even reach out and volunteer? Well, they could Google us. They could find us at BaltimoreCore.org. That's www.BaltimoreCoreCorps.org. They can find us at social media on Twitter at Baltimore Core. They can find us on social media on Facebook backslash Baltimore Core. They can find us on LinkedIn. They can find us on Instagram. Um, we have hundreds of alumni around the city, so I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of folks know a Baltimore Core fellow, a Baltimore Core Elevation Awardee, a Baltimore Core Public Ally. We're located at Mundamin Mall, which is one of the biggest cash malls in the United States, the greatest neighborhood in America. Um, it's a great transportation hub that's accessible by public transport. So if you come to Mundamin Mall, you'll find us. We're right next to Capital One in the plaza with shoppers. So we're around. We got people down in City Hall. We got people in kind of your neighborhood nonprofit. We got the small business right down the street. We're probably lending to them and supporting them and helping them grow their business. So we try to be everywhere, but we also try to keep the community and the people doing the work front and center. So if you reach out, we'll reach back. It's fantastic. Um, all right. We covered everything. Is there anything you want to go over that we haven't already talked about? I just want to thank you for taking the time to 
dig into our work and, and my story. I really appreciate it. So thanks for your time. I appreciate you for sitting down with me, uh, Fagan Harris, CEO of Baltimore Corp. My pleasure. Pleasure, bro. Thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. Today's episode of Local Color was written, produced, narrated, edited, and published by me, Jason V. Follow Local Color on Instagram at Local Color Podcast. You can also like Local Color on Facebook. Head to Local Color's website, localcolorpodcast.com, where you can listen to the entire catalog. Also, please subscribe to Local Color on iTunes to get those push notifications when new episodes drop. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason V, and I'll be back with more Local Color.